What makes a successful person successful? That's the question we posed to Jason Pfeiffer, editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, and he blew us away with an answer. Well, we knew where he was going with it because he's written an entire book on this one topic. He'll talk about that book, but more importantly, take a listen to his answer and the examples he's given throughout history about what happens when people are introduced to a new idea and what successful people do to see success even though they live in a constant world of change. Enjoy this week's episode. Being a Jew, awesome. Managing personal finances, not so awesome. Welcome to Kosher Money. Entrepreneurship. Yes. Jason, you are the editor-in-chief of a magazine actually named Entrepreneur. Indeed. So let's get right into it. What is an entrepreneur and do I need to own an actual business to be an entrepreneur? Well, so that's for everybody to decide because there's no one cultural definition of entrepreneur. I mean, you go to the dictionary, you'll find a definition of entrepreneur. But what I have found is that an incredible range of people with all sorts of backgrounds, doing all sorts of things in their lives, have come to me, have come to Entrepreneur Magazine, and they identify as an entrepreneur. And and I was looking for a way to describe them all and to understand the people that I was reaching. And I came to this. My definition of an entrepreneur is someone who makes things happen for themselves. And I think that that can be true by starting your own business. That's wonderful. But sometimes people are entrepreneurs inside of organizations. They're intrapreneurs. Or they just think entrepreneurially about the things that they're doing and working on. And I think that that's wonderful. The tenets of entrepreneurship, the mindset of entrepreneurship should be available to everybody. You probably recorded interviews with hundreds of entrepreneurs. You've read thousands of interviews What common traits, what common denominators do you see from successful entrepreneurs? I think that the number one most important and most consistent trait is adaptability. Without question, I meet people who get into really the hardest journey of their lives, building something from nothing, and they don't know at the beginning, if it's a good idea, if other people are going to like it. And so what they do is they get into this journey and they start to test and they start to produce and they start to learn and things are going to change around them. Opportunities are going to change. Their customer is going to change. The economy, the industry is going to change. Technology is going to change. And I have found that at some point, people split. They either hold on to their original idea, they can't let it go, or they're just fearful of abandoning comforts in favor of whatever is going to come next, and they can't do it, and they fall behind. And then there are other people who see change as an opportunity, who have a clear idea and understanding of what is deep inside of them, what matters most, and how this is a line that was said to me by Dwayne The Rock Johnson and his business partner, Danny Garcia. They said, we are not attached to process. We're only attached to outcome. I love that. They have an idea of where they want to go, what they want to deliver to people. They don't care how to get there. How to get there will constantly change, constantly evolve. There are some people 
who love that, who love the reinvention. And those are the people who I think are the most successful. And if you are not that person, I am here to tell you, you can learn to be that person. It is not something people are born with. It's a skill that you can develop. So we can go in a few different ways, but number one, when people say, if it's not broken, it doesn't need fixing. Mm -hmm. When you hear that, what comes to mind? There's truth in some of that. Sometimes something doesn't need to be constantly fiddled with right now, but you better be thinking about what's going to come next. Because just because it's not broken right now doesn't mean that it will never be broken. It's important to understand the distinction between those two things, because whatever it is that you do, it will change. I'm just telling you. And that's okay. I'll tell you a quick story as a way of thinking about this. Okay. If I were to say to you, what killed Kodak? What's the answer to that? Time. (laughs) Sure. The digital camera. Right. Right. I mean, that's usually what people say. The digital camera killed Kodak. There's another way of thinking about that. And look, I should say the digital camera killing Kodak, that is true in many ways. Kodak, as people will know, was actually very involved in the development of the digital camera. They had that technology in-house and they said, "Mm, I don't know about that. I don't think that's the future. They put it on the shelf. They kept focusing on camera film. But I was talking to a guy whose name is Hamza Mudassir. He is a disruption expert. He's at Cambridge. And he told me this interesting theory about what really killed Kodak. He said, look, what killed Kodak wasn't the digital camera. What killed Kodak was Facebook. Now, how's that possible? Well, here's how. Because do you remember the first digital cameras? They were terrible. <laughs> they're they terrible devices, right? It was early technology. They were slow and grinding. They, they couldn't store that many photos. And the photos that you took were often really grainy because there, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't great. I don't know. I'm not a tech guy, but whatever it was, it, it, it wasn't enough pixels, whatever. Don't ask me. But it was garbage. And so people would buy them, but they saw it as a kind of funny toy. And they were still mostly taking photos with their camera film. Then Facebook comes along and Facebook offers the first real use case for digital photos. For the first time, people say, oh, I know what to do with these. Oh, I can put them somewhere, store them in a centralized place. Other people can see them and appreciate them. Before this, we took photos, we took the best and we put them on the refrigerator or in a book. And that's what we thought of as photos. Facebook gave us a different way to understand this moment of capturing an image and sharing it with others. And that, that is what moved people to digital photography. And that's what killed Kodak. And the reason I tell you that story is because you might step back and think, if you were Kodak at some point, you say, you know, if it's not broken, no, don't fix it, right? And, and, and even when cameras, digital cameras came along, they looked around, people were still buying the camera film. And they would say, oh, this is not broken. Don't, we don't have to fix this. We don't have to reinvent everything just because this technology exists. But they were wrong. They were right and they were wrong. They were right that change wasn't going to happen immediately. They were wrong in that they thought it would never happen. As a result, they thought of themselves in the wrong way. Kodak thought of itself as a company that makes camera film. What it should have done is thought of itself as being a company in the business of capturing your memories. And if you think about it like that, well, then you know what's not broken? What's not broken and will never be broken is that people will always want to capture their memories. But what's going to change is the way in which they do it. And you better be mindful that that 
articulation of your core value is going to change. It's always going to change. And once you start to think of that differently, I'm not in the camera film business. I'm in the memory business. You start to liberate yourself to say, there are other ways to do this. I, Kodak, have a lot more money than this kid who just dropped out of college and is building this company called Facebook. I bet I can get into social media. I bet I can help people capture and share images better. That's the problem with thinking, if it's not broken, don't fix it. It's not a matter of whether it's broken right now. It's a matter of how you can anticipate tomorrow's needs and start moving there faster. So you kind of answered my next question because to me, when I think about disrupting myself, mm -hmm. I'm thinking actively, I'm playing offense of what do I need to go? Where, where, where do I need to slide to? Where's the puck going? Yeah. When really you're saying, take a step back and look at what you're providing, what value you're providing somebody so that you can then reframe that lens to continue providing value to the people. You know, in, in some ways it's a camera to provide memories. Yeah. And then it's social media to provide value in, in this space of, uh, of memories. Interesting. Before you move on, let me yeah. just build on top of what you just said there. What you need is a clarity of purpose. And I think that people often identify far too closely with the output of their work or the role that they occupy with the specific things that are very easily changeable rather than with the deeper thing, the thing that they do that will never, never change because people will always need it. it sounds kind of abstract, but it's the difference between this. I could say my core value in the world, I'm a magazine editor. I could say that, right? I am a magazine editor. It's true. It's how I draw a lot of my income right now. But if I were to say I'm a magazine editor and understand that as my core value, identify primarily as a magazine editor, I mean, look, this is, well, this is my phone. This is my phone, right? And uh, the reason I'm holding this up is not just to show off my kids, but because a guy named Bill Shaw who is the president of Entrepreneur Media, which is the company that owns Entrepreneur Magazine. I don't own Entrepreneur Magazine. A guy named Ryan Shea owns it. He's the CEO. Bill is the president. Bill's my boss. He's who I report to. Bill has this phone number. Bill could call me right now or at any time, and he could fire me. There's nothing stopping him from doing that. Literally nothing. He could do it on a whim. Don't give him ideas. I know. <laughs> I hope he's not listening to this live. If my identity is, I'm a magazine editor. I'm one phone call away from losing my identity. That's a terrible place to be. It's too changeable. So what I think we need is we need a way to understand ourselves where we're identifying a mission, a core, something that is so deep inside of us that it drove us to develop the skills that we have that enable us to do the tasks that we identify with, something that does not change in times of change. And I think that you should be able to articulate that in a single sentence. Sentence starts with I, has only a few words, each word carefully selected because it is not anchored to something that's easily changeable. Anybody who's watching or listening to this at home, you should be thinking about this for yourself. What is a single sentence that you can offer that explains you and your value in a way that does not change? I'll give you an example for me. So it's not, I'm a magazine editor, way too easily changeable. Instead, it's this. Seven words. I tell stories in my own voice, right? I tell stories. Stories, an incredibly important word there because a magazine job can disappear. 
the need for stories never, never disappears. That's core to how we understand the world. It's core to how we communicate. So far already, as we've been sitting here, I've told you stories. I wrote a book. It's full of stories. I get on stage and I talk to companies full of stories. You can't take that away from me. Nobody can call me and take that away from me. And then in my own voice, that's me setting the terms for how I want to operate in this phase of my career. I wouldn't have said in my own voice a decade and a half ago. I was learning. I was learning my voice. But now I'm established. I tell stories in my own voice. This gives me clarity of purpose. It helps me understand what are opportunities that I want to seize and which ones are not right for me. It allows me to feel confident that no matter what changes in my life or my work, the ability to tell stories in my own voice and the value that that can provide to the world does not change. When you locate that for yourself, then everything that changes around you just becomes moving sets of opportunities for how to best express the thing that's deep inside of you. I'm just thinking of Jason watching those viral TikToks where someone runs over to you in the street and says, what do you do for a living? And the person says, I'm a data engineer. Yeah. I'm a graphic designer. You're like, no, no, that's not the title you should. <laughs> right, right, right. Right. Well, but I mean, the funny thing is like that exercise, I think is a really important one. But you know, if I was at a dinner party and someone says, what do you do? I wouldn't say I tell stories in my own voice. That's right. weird and obnoxious, <laughs> right? Like I would explain what I actually do, right. but we just need to make sure that we're not tying our identity to the things in our lives that are most easily changeable because that just sets us up for disruption. We'll be right back to this week's episode. But first, let me paint a picture. It's the end of 2023. Many people are looking for and cashing in on tax deductions. And I learned about something that more and more people are doing. Get this. They're putting money into a charitable entity without actually having to allocate the money to a specific cause. How does it work? I'm glad you asked. It's something called the donor's fund. You create an account in under 60 seconds, and any money that you place into the account is instantly eligible for an immediate tax deduction. You can then decide throughout 2024 and beyond where exactly you'd like to allocate that money. It's absolutely free. No hidden charges, no funny business. So if you love running around, pulling your hair out, trying to find where you have donation receipts across dozens of organizations, the Donors Fund is not for you. If you want everything streamlined, one place, look up the Donors Fund. It's all your donations, one button away. We're talking about a robust online platform, a super friendly mobile app. It's like a bank-like system for your charitable giving. Really cool, really slick, really neat. There's loads more. I don't want to overwhelm you in week one. They offer checkbooks, debit cards, investment options, legendary customer service, and so much more. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to visit the donorsfund.org slash kosher money. Create an account. It takes under 60 seconds. I did it about 35 seconds. I'm fast. The link's in the show notes. Click around their website. There's tons more I didn't even explain, discuss, so many different features and services. Take advantage of it. So many, so many people are, and there's no reason you should not be doing the same. Okay? The donorsfund.org slash kosher money. Thank me later. Do it while you still have time in 2023. If you're listening to this in 2024, it's not too late. There's tons you can do with it. Check them out. And now back to this week's episode. I think if you do frame it in a way that you're describing, yeah. people can also be making more money as a result, right? In the in the long run, right? People are going through their careers thinking, I'm a data engineer. Mm -hmm. I'm a data engineer. That's what I'm a data analyst. That's what... It, 
but if they reframe that, right, what would you tell a data analyst perhaps to reframe and rethink someone's watching today, they're, you know, navigating through an Excel, they got yeah. the AirPod in, listening to Jason, they're like, hmm, synonyms for data <laughs> analyst, Well, right? right, so it's not about, and look, this is going to be a personal answer for everybody. Right. So I'm not here to tell that data analyst what they should and should or should not think about themselves. But I would say, take a step back and think about what is your zone of genius, which is not a phrase I came up with, but what's your zone of genius? What's the thing that you're really good at? Being able to analyze data is one expression of something that you're incredibly good at that's deeper within you. Go a level deeper. Could it be that what you're amazing at is you're a pattern matcher? Could it be that what you're amazing at is helping people see signal from noise? What is the thing that your brain is programmed to do? My brain is programmed to tell stories. What's your brain programmed to do? And also that you love doing. I mean, I travel around the country and I give this exercise of finding this mission statement to senior executives at global corporations and you know also people at startups. And then they come up to me and they tell me these awesome things. They say, I solve complex problems. I help teams achieve great things. I grow businesses. I find solutions, right? As just deep as it gets. But once they start thinking about that, they've realized, oh, wait a second. If I'm doing that in this way over here, I can do it in that way over there too. I, I, I meet so many people who feel stuck. Mm. They feel stuck because they're working a job and maybe they don't love it. Maybe they've outgrown it. And they're afraid that leaving it means leaving the thing that they're good at and leaving their value behind and that they have to start from scratch. And what I always tell them is spend some time recognizing why you're good at that job. It's not just because you learned the tasks associated with that job. It's because there's something deeper inside you that enabled you to thrive in that situation. Or maybe you're not thriving, but it enabled you to at least orient yourself to that and figure out what you like and what you don't like. And now the next question is, how do you build upon that? How do you build upon that? I could have thought to myself, I've reached the end of my magazine career. I thought about leaving magazines a number of times. Pay is not that great, I'll be honest with you. And there's constant talk of layoffs. And when I got to Entrepreneur Magazine, I became editor-in-chief. I thought to myself, this is probably my last magazine job. I mean, where am I going to go from here? But also that was really scary because what am I supposed to do next? I've spent my whole career in magazines until I realized, wait a second, I'm not in magazines. I'm a communicator. And I can build upon what I've learned as a communicator to do that in other areas. I mean, you think that sitting down and talking to you and having this kind of conversation comes naturally? It didn't. It was years of training and figuring out how to take the skills that I had learned in other arenas and apply it to this one because there was an opportunity. And what I needed to do was not start from scratch, not say, oh, I don't know who I am anymore. No, instead it was about figuring out what am I good at? What do I know? And how can I use that as a foundation to build upon something next? So we talk to the data analyst and we say, you are really good at something. You, it's for you to decide what that is. Is that that you're a great pattern matcher? Is that that you're great signal to noise? What, whatever it is, you're great at something. 
And the question is, how do you want to apply that greatness? Because there are infinite ways to do it once you liberate yourself from thinking that this thing that you're doing right now is the only way to be good. We're about to get to my favorite part of this conversation. I've, I've heard this story from you multiple times <laughs> and, and I love it each time. This is the first time I'm gonna hear it live. Mm. Um, let's talk about change throughout history, uh -huh. right? Change, as much change change has, there's a common theme within change. Let's yeah. talk about the invention of the bicycle. Okay. <laughs> Go for it. Floor is yours. Okay. Well, it's scary because there's a lot to say about the invention of the bicycle. So I don't know exactly which direction you're thinking, but I'll tell you a few things to start with the bicycle. So number one is the bicycle that you ride, assuming you ride a bicycle, was not the first bicycle <laughs> by, by far. It was what was known as the safety bicycle, which came along after a while. There were a lot of things that needed to be figured out. The first bicycle was often called the bone shaker because it was this just heavy metal thing, originally not with the, even without pedals. And it would rumble down the street and it was incredibly uncomfortable. And they were trying to figure out, well, how to, how to develop you know, this sort of 1800s. They didn't have shock technology. And, and, and so they created the penny farthing, which is that comical looking bicycle with the giant wheel in the front and then the small wheel in the back. And that wasn't actually to be funny looking. Uh, that was because the design of that bicycle absorbed the bumps of the road better. And so it actually created a smoother ride <laughs> unless you fell and then it was a long way to go down. And then eventually they created the safety bicycle. And what was fascinating about the safety bicycle was that it solved for one problem and it created another. It solved for the problem of a smoother ride. And once they created the safety bicycle, which was a bicycle that you could ride uh, fairly smoothly and also it had brakes uh, and it was just more controllable. That's why they called it the safety bicycle. It became really popular, incredibly popular. So popular that we had a national moral crisis about this thing because people were starting to ride bicycles and there was a lot of concern about how damaging this invention was going to be in all sorts of ways. So what did we what were we worried about? We were worried that women were going to go infertile or insane. There was a lot of concern that the spinning of the wheel was a unnatural thing for our brains to process and would kind of over override our brains. There was a lot of concern about our faces, that we were to get bicycle face. Uh, this was a real condition that people were really concerned about. Right? This sounds like a joke now, but no, the idea was that we naturally are not built to withstand the amount of wind that would be in our faces as we're riding a bicycle at an unnatural speed. Because again, consider before the bicycle, people didn't have personal transportation devices to get around. Suddenly they did. It seemed very weird. So bicycle face, a genuine condition where people were afraid that the wind in the face would, and the strain of the bicycle would kind of harden into a like, like a grimace or something. And there were all sorts of other like kind of crazy and weird scares related to the bicycle. And you know what I find so fascinating about this, of course, is that none of this proved true, obviously. The bicycle was perfectly safe. It's a great way of getting around. I mean, obviously you have to be safe with it, but we see versions of this kind of fear play out over and over and over again, where something new is introduced. And one of our first thoughts is, this isn't natural. We, as a people, are too fragile for this. 
we're not built for this. We're not built for this speed. We're not built for this way of getting around. We're not built for this technology. This technology will destroy us. It will ruin us. It will break us. Never does. Never. I mean, this same exact concern has come up in just about every possible invention that you can think of from the novel car, lots of fear about the car, they called it the devil wagon, to the teddy bear, national moral crisis over the teddy bear in 1907. It's true. People were banning teddy bears. Priests were preaching against it. It was crazy. And always the thinking is that this new thing is going to create an imbalance. And this balance of doing the things in the way that we had always done them, because the way that we had done them is built off of what the limitations of our abilities are. And therefore, this new thing, we have to hold off on this. This is not good. This is dangerous. And it's never true. I think that that applies to a lot of the conversations that are happening about technology today. I think a lot of people are very afraid of AI. I think unnecessarily so. We can talk about that. But you can apply it in your own life too, where you know maybe you're asked in your career to do something in a way that feels different and unusual, or that you know, you've know you been serving clients in a certain way and now things seem to be changing. They want something else. This new generation, these Gen Zers, they want something totally different. I don't understand it and I don't like it and I don't think it's natural. But I'm here to tell you that it is, that it's fine, that what we do as people is we adapt we adapt and we adapt and we adapt. And we do that because that's what we're actually built to do. The funny fallacy about the bicycle and the way in which we feared all the things that it would do to us is that it was built on an idea that we are fixed, that there is one way to be a person in the world. But it turns out that actually what we are built to do is we are built to change and adapt. You talk to brain scientists, what they'll say is that our brains are incredibly plastic, right? Not plastic and actual plastic, but plastic and that they're malleable. They change. If you learn how to do something new, anything, anything, if you've never driven a car before and then you learn how to drive a car, it changes your brain. It does for the better because your brain has learned something new. And every time you do that, you become stronger, more adaptable more able to take on the new challenges of the day, more able to succeed. What can someone do in their personal life when they're confronted with change or they want to disrupt themselves? They mm -hmm. want to take action, but that natural fear, which I would imagine almost everyone has yeah. as it relates to change, what can they do practically to say, I want to be better in this arena. Mm -hmm. I want to adapt to change a little bit better than I did yesterday. Yeah. Okay, a couple of things. I want to talk to you about evaluating the fear, and then I want to talk about experimentation. So let's do those two. So evaluating the fear. I can remember the last, yeah, the last, the last dinner, social event that I had before COVID shut everything down. And that was going out to dinner to celebrate my friend Nicole Lappin's birthday. Nicole and I have a podcast together called Help Wanted, and she had um, invited 10 friends or something out to a restaurant. And so we went out, and this was, you know, like the week before everything shut down. And back then, remember, we're all like hand sanitizing as if that's going to stop anything. 
And I'm sitting down and I'm talking to this woman named Megan Asha. Megan has a company called FounderMade. It's like a trade show um, for the CPG industry. And so it's a live events company. And I said to Megan, I said, Megan, it looks like live events are shutting down. What are you going to do? And she said, you know, I got to tell you, weirdly, I'm excited about this. I said, how's that possible? It sounds like your whole business model is about to get disrupted. And she said, well, here's the thing. We at FounderMade have had all of these ideas for other lines of revenue, other ways to expand the business. But we've always been so busy putting all of our resources into organizing and running the trade shows that we've never actually been able to explore any of these other ideas. And now we're being forced to take a pause. And that's going to give us the time to start exploring things that had been unexplorable before. And at the time, I thought to myself, this is a fearless woman. Like, this is just someone who does not feel fear. This is incredible. But as I thought about it more, and as I watched other people during COVID and after examine their moment and their relationship to the change that was coming to them, I came to realize something, which was that Megan was not a person without fear. Megan was a person with fear, but she was using fear in a better way. The way I see it is that you can have a fear, like anytime that you feel afraid of some kind of change, you're experiencing one of two different kinds of fear. It's either fear from behind or fear from what's ahead. And the fear from behind is, I am going to lose what I already had. I'm going to lose the good thing. And therefore, what I need to do is figure out a way to hold on to it as fast and tight as possible. I need to protect against this loss. That's one fear. And we all fear that, right? We all feel that. But then there's another fear. And the other fear is, I'm afraid of not figuring out fast enough what's next. Because here's the thing, there's going to be something next, right? Something always happens next. The world does not stop. So if you have faced some kind of disruption, you have two choices. You can either allow fear to drive you to try to hold on to what you're losing, or you can allow fear to drive you towards figuring out what's next fastest. And I think that Megan was afraid of not figuring out what the next thing was fast enough. And that drove her to think differently about what she was doing and how to use her resources. So the first thing that I would do, you asked for practical. The first thing that I would do is that if you are finding fear in yourself, ask yourself which kind of fear this is. And if it is the fear that's driving you backwards, start to ask, how can this fear drive me forwards? How can I use this fear? What am I afraid of that I can do, create, versus what am I, what am I afraid of that's causing me to hold something back. And then, okay, fine, great. So I fear not getting ahead fast enough. I fear not knowing what's next. Well, okay, what are you supposed to do with that? Now we talk about experimentation. Talk to this woman, her name is Katie Milkman. She's a professor at Wharton. She wrote a, she studies uh, behavioral changes and wrote a book called How to Change. And I asked her, so I interviewed her for my book. I asked her, Katie, What's the first thing somebody should do when they feel stuck, don't know what to do about the change ahead, and they're fearing, feeling fearful? And she said, she was like, look, this is going to sound kind of pat, 
and almost stupidly simple, but experiment. What does that mean? Well, here's the thing. We often think of doing something new as a commitment, as a long-term commitment. If I'm going to try something, I'm in it now. It requires a radical reinvention, a rethinking of what it is that I do and how I do it. And therefore, it's a long-term commitment. I'm throwing myself into this. And Katie said, it doesn't have to be that. It doesn't have to be that. You can and should instead just think about the things ahead as experiments. Because when you think about things as experiments, you completely change the stakes of what they are. Because if I'm going to try something new and it's a long-term commitment, I better make this thing work. But if I think of this as an experiment, experiments are not necessarily supposed to work, right? You don't, as a scientist, you don't run an experiment because you think it's going to work. You run an experiment to see if it works. And so what happens if you say, okay, you know what? Why don't I try this for a set amount of time? We're going to try this for three months and try this for three weeks, and we're going to see what happens. I'll set some benchmarks. After three months, I, I'm going to step back and ask, did it do this for me or that for me? Or did I make X amount of dollars? Did I, whatever happened. And then you can say, all right, was this a good experiment or a bad experiment? Is it worth re-upping this experiment? Is it worth moving on from this experiment? I'll tell you, I have, I have offered that very simple piece of advice to a lot of people. It's wild to watch it unlock things in them. My wife, for example, my wife has been thinking for a long time about making some kind of career change. She's worked for herself uh, and is a freelancer, but you know, freelance is a hustle and it's draining. And she's been thinking about, does she want to try something else? And then she will think, well, but I don't know if I want a job. That sounds like a lie. I don't know that I want that. I would be happy with that. I don't want to work for somebody else. And so she's stuck because she doesn't even know how to start to explore the idea of what's outside of the things that she's doing because she's immediately thinking, oh, I can't commit to that. So I said to her, what if you just treat a job exploration, not even a search, an exploration as an experiment? What does that mean? Well, what about go on to LinkedIn and just say, you know what, for the next month, every other day, I'm going to look at job postings on LinkedIn. That, that's the experiment. That's it, right? And maybe maybe you'll see something that you like and it'll it will run another experiment. The experiment is apply for some jobs. Doesn't mean you're committing, right? It does, nothing happens as a result of that except that you're going to try it and by trying it, you are going to feel new things. You're going to force yourself to engage with the idea of doing this. And that is now what she's doing. And she's inching her way towards a better understanding of the things that she wants to do. She hasn't committed to anything, but she's running experiments. And that allows you to take steps forward. We'll be right back to this week's episode. But first, let me tell you about Twillery's performance coat. I'm wearing it now if you're watching on video. This isn't your grandfather's old coat. Throw that thing away. It's something better. First off, it fits right. It's not too tight. It's not too loose. You can throw it on over a shirt, a sweater. It has this cool detachable hood. You can snap it up. When the weather's acting up, sun shines, you throw it off. But what I like about it is it doesn't feel stiff or bulky, okay? So if I'm running out on errands, casual night, it moves with me, not against me. You could even make it tapered along the side that has these like tabs. 
Speaking of the inside, it has this soft fleece stuff. I think that's the word officially, scientifically. And it's soft. It looks sharp. It feels like I'm not trying too hard. I don't get sweaty in it. There's a sale now. It's $199. If you're a first-time shopper, take $18 off with promo code CHAI, C-H-A-I. Twillery.com slash kosher money. Links in the show notes. It comes in four colors, blue, black, navy, and olive, six different sizes. I've said enough. Take a look at it if you're in the market for an awesome coat at a great price. If you're in the market for an amazing coat at a terrible price, this coat's not for you. If you're in the market for a terrible coat at an awesome price, this coat's not for you. See what I did there? Work with me, not against me. Just like this coat. All ad-libbed, beautiful. See you later. Now back to this week's episode. You sort of tricked the brain into doing something that you were afraid to do, but you reclassified it in an area of safety. Yeah. And you propelled her. By the way, did she, did it work out the experiment? She got the job? Oh, uh, she's still uh, in the she's, we're, not, we're not in, we're not, we're not there yet. Right, right. <laughs> okay, but it's a start. But it's a start. But what right. I like that she's doing is that it's contributed to an expansion of a conversation, right? It's allowed her to start to think about different things. And, and actually something that she's thinking about doing now is, uh, is starting a company. And she wasn't thinking about that before. And in a way, I would say if if she does start this company and if it is successful, like if that's something that she does, I think it's fair to say that in a way, looking at these job postings and sending out, she sent out so far one, one application to one job that she saw. She didn't even hear back. And yet I think that exploring that, if she ultimately learns, you know, engaging with this has taught me this is not what I want, that might have pushed her in the other direction to start something of her, of her own. And that's equally as successful. That's an equally excellent option, right? Because if you explore something, it will teach you. It will teach you that either that's a good direction or it's a bad direction. But either way, you're moving, which is better than sitting still. What type of work is she in? Uh, media as media. well. Media. Yeah. So if she does create a company, one of the links we'll put in the show notes is a link to her company that website. Sounds excellent. We'd love that. Create more safety around uh, the push. Yeah. Um, that's really cool. Okay. There are a couple more stories that I'd love to hit on. Sure. Um, one is the is Lita, the owner of the wig shop. Uh-huh. And the other one is the Dogfish IPA. Oh, okay. Great. I'll let you take it in whatever direction, but I think there's a lot of value and there's a point at the end of each story that I think would provide value for the audience. Yeah. Great. Okay. So Lena from the wigs and, and Dogfish IPA. <laughs> Shorthand that people will understand in yeah. a second. Okay. So let's start with Lena. The reason I'm going to tell you this story is because of what I have found to be the value of reconsidering the impossible. I think that oftentimes we build this box around ourselves and we say all the good ideas, all the valuable ideas, all the things that work, they're in this box. All the bad ideas, the impractical ideas, the things that don't work, those are outside. And this makes sense. This is perfectly logical because we can't engage with every idea. It's too much. It's too much. And so we have to create some kind of filters for ourselves. But the problem is that our filters are imperfect. We will never, ever be able to create a perfect gerrymandered line around every good idea and leave out every bad idea. As a result, we have to be aware that some of the things that we're doing right now are not actually the best way to do the things that we want. And some of the ways that we're growing our businesses or our careers are not the best way. 
it's helpful to have moments to step back and say, is there a different way to do this? And that is what was forced upon Lena. So here's the story of Lena. So Lena has a wig shop in Baltimore. It's called Lena's Wigs. And before the pandemic, Lena's Wigs was a storefront, a regular storefront. And you know how a storefront operates. You could walk on in and you can browse to storefront. And because it was a storefront, Lena had an employee who would greet people who come in off the street. And then COVID. And COVID shuts everything down and people cannot come in, wander in off the street into Lena's store anymore, at least in the very beginning. Lena doesn't know what to do because people can't come in. How is she going to run her business? And so she's looking around for any kind of solution. And the only thing that she can think of is something that frankly is not some radical idea. It's just something that she was aware of that she didn't think was right for her. And that is appointment only. That she would force people or invite people to make an appointment to come in by themselves and try on wigs. Now, Lena had always thought this is a bad idea because why would I create friction for my customer? I operate a storefront. Anybody can come in at any time. Why would I make it more difficult for people to shop with me? That's why she never wanted to do appointments. But now she was forced to. It was the only way to operate. And so she did. And what she found shocked her. Two things. Number one, consumers were happier. Number two, she made more money. Why? Because here's the thing. You know who doesn't buy wigs? You know who doesn't buy wigs? The answer is people who walk in off the street. They don't buy wigs. They browse wigs. They're curious about wigs. They come and they look around. They love browsing. Love browsing. Happy to look. You know who does buy wigs? People who are shopping generally for very personal reasons, health or religious, most likely. And those people are far happier making this personal decision, not surrounded by a bunch of randos who have walked in off the street. So Lena's actual customer was not a person who walked in off the street. And yet, Lena was creating an environment in which her best customers had to be in a less comfortable environment. And Lena was paying somebody to greet people who came in off the street and didn't buy wigs. It didn't make sense. And now that she had appointment only, her actual customers were thrilled. Thrilled to have this personal experience without these randos walking in off the street. And they bought more. And Lena started to realize, wait a second, I could probably do this virtually too. And so she starts to set up virtual appointments where people don't even come in. And her business expands and people are happier. And what she learned from this was the value of reconsidering the impossible. Like I said, that business model, appointment only, seemed impossible to her because it was outside of that little boundary that she had created about what good ideas are. And we need to constantly be reevaluating for ourselves which are the ideas that are right for us and which are the ideas that could be even better. And I'd say that this goes back to experiments. It couldn't have hurt Lena to think, you know, maybe I should ask some of my customers if they would like to make an appointment. Not much of a commitment. They would have said yes. 
you would have learned something. And this really goes back to, I think, this question that you asked earlier about the idea of if it's not broken, don't fix it. Before COVID, Lena would not have said that her storefront was broken. She wouldn't have said that. It worked. People came in, they bought wigs. It worked. But the thing is that underneath it kind of was broken. It was broken and she didn't even recognize it. And that's the funny thing is that sometimes we don't know when something's broken or we aren't ready to acknowledge that something's broken because to acknowledge that something's broken is to fix it, is to make a change. It's hard, scary. So step back and ask yourself, what are the things that I think are most important about what I'm doing? And then next question, how important are they really? Like really, can you test that out? Can you prove to me, can you prove to yourself without a shadow of a doubt that the way that you're doing it is the best way to do it? Because if you can't, then maybe it's worth running a little bit of an experiment. I'll tell you what wasn't broken. Dogfish heads, <laughs> IPA business model. That's right. And then he completely turned it 180. What happened there? Right. Okay. So let's, so, so one other principle here about change, which is change before you must. So I think that there are two ways to think about change. Either number one, you can think of change as a thing that you wait for and you react to when you have to. Change comes, oh, I'll deal with it later, I'll deal with it later. Eventually you got to deal with it. Okay, now I'll deal with it. But now you're scrambling. You're scrambling, trying to make something work. You're trying to fix problems. You're trying to put out fires. You're trying to do whatever you can to stop the pain. There's another way. And that is to change before you must. To see the change coming a mile away and say, I'm going to make a sometimes radical change now before I'm forced to. It might look crazy, but it is the thing that is going to allow me to define this change on my own terms and survive and thrive. Now, what does that sound like? Well, you've teed up dogfish. Look, this is hard. This is hard stuff to do, but I'll tell you about dogfish. So dogfish is a brewery in Delaware. Perhaps some beer fans are listening uh, and they already know that. And dogfish was founded by a guy named Sam. Sam is- Not related to Sam Adams. Uh, not related to Sam Adams. Okay. Well- dot, 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 um, you possibly teed up the answer to this. Oh, I didn't know. No, no, yeah, that's great. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Uh, so you'll see. We'll come back to this in just a couple minutes. So Sam starts Dogfish, and it's in Delaware. One of the, his earliest beers that he makes is a beer called 90-Minute IPA. So that is a 9% alcohol by volume IPA. The 9%, for those who don't know, that's a strong beer. That's a, that's a you put that, puts you right on the floor, that beer. And then IPA, India Pale Ale, very popular bitter style of beer. So, so Sam releases this 90-minute IPA. People like it. His distributor reaches out and says, Sam, great beer. People really like it. Got an idea. Can you make a version of this that people can drink standing up? Like, just like one that isn't as heavy on the alcohol. Sam says, that's a good idea. And so he makes 60-minute IPA, 6% alcohol by volume. For reference, I think a Bud Light is like a 4.5%. So 6% alcohol. You can have a few of these and you're still standing. People like this beer when it comes out. And then they love this beer. And then they need this beer. They have to have this beer. Like it is just on fire, this thing. And everybody, bars, restaurants, Amtrak, ordering this beer. And this beer rockets up so fast 
that it is on track to become 75 to 80% of all sales of dogfish. 75 to 80% of everything that this company sells is going to be this one beer. And you might think that is excellent. Like that, that isn't that what we're in business for is to make a great, make a great product that people want and they're going to spend a lot of money on. But Sam thinks differently. Sam does not think, let's sell this beer. Sam thinks, I got a problem. And the problem is that tastes change. And so if he allows this beer to be the runaway hit, 60-minute IPA, taking over the company, 75 to 80% of all sales are this one beer. That means that every time somebody walks in to a liquor store, and looks for dogfish, they're going to find this one beer. Every time somebody goes into a bar and looks for dogfish, they're going to find this one beer. Everything is going to shape people's perception of dogfish as an IPA brand, a hot IPA brand, a brand that sells this one beer, this IPA. And that's fine for a while until tastes change. And when tastes change, and they will, Sam knew this, as soon as tastes change and IPAs are not as popular, then Sam's company will go from being a hot IPA brand selling a lot of product to an old brand, and that's death. So Sam makes a decision, a crazy-sounding decision, and that is that he is going to cap sales of his best-selling product at 50%. Remember, it could be 75 to 80% of all sales of dogfish or this one beer. He's capping it at 50%, and people are furious. They're furious at him. They're screaming at him on the streets of Delaware. I've walked around Delaware with Sam. Sam is Beyonce in Delaware. People are taking selfies with him. They're screaming at him. Why? Makes sense. You run the local bar and people are coming in and they want the hot local beer and you don't have it. You look foolish. Who are you angry at? You're angry at Sam. I said, Sam, did this worry you doing this? And he said, no, because number one, didn't have a choice. He just knew in his heart Letting this beer dominate his company would ultimately be bad for business. But two, he said it was an education opportunity because when people called and they said, we'd like to order 60-minute IPA, he would say, I'm really sorry. We make the beer incredibly fresh. We're trying to keep up with demand. Basically a lie. While we're trying to get to your order, why don't you try some of our other styles of beer? Why don't you try our Saison? Why don't you try our pumpkin ale? And as a result, what Sam does is he gets the wide full range of his beers into stores instead of just that one beer. And doing that shifts perception of Dogfish, not as a hot IPA brand, but rather as an innovative brand. And you know what you can do with an innovative brand? You teed it up. You can sell it for $200 million to the Boston Beer Company, maker of Sam Adams, Mm. which is exactly what he did. And that is what happens when you change before you must. We'll be right back to this week's episode. But first, a message from Kolel Chabad. Kolel Chabad is part of Israel's emergency response on the front line. This team is delivering tens of thousands, literally tens of thousands of cooked meals to frightened families and shelters across the country. From the first hours, all wheels were moving at Kol Chabad, and they were turning out meals as fast as possible to help people in need. So if you have the ability to make a tax-deductible year-end donation to Kol Chabad, please do. It's a very worthy organization. They've been around since 1788, and they're still going strong 
2023 and 2024. Give what you can. Incredible work. I know the team there personally now. I visited their headquarters. Now they have shops set up across the country, literally kitchens, clothing, all types of support, right? You have orphans. You have people that just have no family whatsoever. They are assisting them. They're helping them. And they need us, people from across the world. If you can give $10, $20, $100, click the link in the show notes, kolachabad.org slash kosher money. It goes a long way. You have the ability to make a recurring donation. Tons and tons of people are giving $18 a month, $100 a month. You can set it and forget it and get the mitzvot, get the reward in the next world, but sleep well at night knowing that you're helping the people of Israel. Now back to this week's episode. You had an amazing line I heard in one of your talks, resistance is for losers. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it. <laughs> you know, it resonates with those people walking into their boss with an idea mm-hmm. of, hey, we've always done it this way, but I think dot, 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 and the door slams in their face. Yeah. And the guy walks away and he goes, what a loser, <laughs> you know, facing that resistance head on and he's afraid. And right. It, it's mean, an awesome line. Thank you. It's funny. I used to end a long time ago. I used to end my talk with that line, resistance is for losers. And then the follow-up was, if you want to win, you have to change. What I mean by that is, is like, look, if you, if you hold firm to how something used to be, only one thing will happen. Only one. And that is that the world will move on from you and you will stay exactly where you are. And that's why resistance is for losers, because you will lose. It's just what will happen. It might not be today, might not be tomorrow. You might hang on for a while. But ultimately, if we're not thinking about what is next, we are setting ourselves up to fail. And I I see it in my own industry. I meet people who, you know, they were a movie reviewer for a regional newspaper. Mm-hmm. Remember when regional newspapers had their own movie reviewers? Those were the days. Those are gone. You know, you spend a long time thinking of yourself as a movie reviewer, and then there's no more need for movie reviewers, and you think, what am I? Maybe I'm nothing. And that's so sad, because all that time, what they could have been doing is thinking about, what am I really good at because I'm good at movie reviews? What am I really good at? Am I really good at understanding story. I could teach people how to craft narrative. Am I really good at understanding consumer behavior in the entertainment space? And I can go and help movie studios reach audiences. Am I not really a movie reviewer so much as a person who is really good at looking at a piece of art and understanding why it works? Maybe I should start teaching some classes at the local university? I think we always need to be thinking, because I am doing this, therefore I can also do that. And it doesn't mean that you need to necessarily set yourself up for radical change. You could be listening to this and you could be happy in your career or building your company and you don't want to change that and you may not have to, but something about the way in which you do it is going to have to change. Right? The thing that you're doing 10 years from now is going to be related to the thing that you're doing today, but it's not going to be the same. And so the more that you can get a jump on that, you could start building the reality of that change 
into how you're operating, the more resilience you will create for yourself. So when that change comes, it never feels like a surprise. It feels like an inevitability. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So there are a few ways to for people to learn more about what goes on inside your brain. You do have an email newsletter. Tell us about that, and then we'll get to the to the book. Sure. So I have a newsletter. It's called One Thing Better. Each week, I give you one way to improve your work and build a career or company that you love. A lot of what we talked about today are the kinds of things that come up in that newsletter, ways to think about resilience, ways to think about new opportunities, ways to experiment. Anyway, you can find One Thing Better at one thing that's one like with an o n e one thing better dot email that's a web address just plug it into any browser one thing better awesome we'll put that in the show notes you do have a book yeah um about embracing change yeah adapting it's called uh build for tomorrow it's on amazon we'll put a link in the show notes is a lot of what you spoke about today and more is is that the idea of of this book yeah that's the idea the book is so uh, build for tomorrow which also is available in audiobook i read it myself that is a real step-by-step guide towards navigating change. So some of the things that we talked about are directly from that book. Some of the things are sort of related to it. But what I do is I, I take you through a four-step process, uh, which I call panic adaptation, new normal, wouldn't go back, to help people build that skill set of adaptability. Because like I told you, it's not something that people are born with. It's something you can learn. Right. It's a muscle. And then you also have that Help Wanted podcast. Yep. With Nicole. With Nicole. Yeah. And that's on the podcast. It's not on YouTube, right? Uh, it is not on YouTube yet, uh, but- We're going to get you there. We're, we're going to get, yes. We're going to convert you. <laughs> yeah. Well, the problem is that Nicole and I live on opposite coasts. Oh, So okay. that's the challenge there. So Nicole Lappin, who's a best-selling money expert, and I, we have the show called Help Wanted. You can find it wherever you get podcasts. And we do exactly that. We help people with their work problems. And very often, and these are my favorite episodes, we bring someone on who has a work problem and then oh, we talk them through it. That's interesting. No, that's good because I, I do see in another world you being a therapist You know, as it relates to change. I have been hearing that a lot, which is uh, an interesting thing. But you know, I, that goes back to what's your core, what's your core, right? And and. It's my core is not it's not words, it's how people think. And when you recognize that, you realize, oh, there are all sorts of things that you can do. So you should be a therapist. Don't resist that. Okay. Don't be a loser. <laughs> yeah, no, because I, I think a lot of what you spoke about applies to a lot of people, mm-hmm. right? Where it's you know, some episodes we have, you know, setting up a trust fund. Is that for every change, whether in your work yeah. or in your personal life? Like you said, it it happens. Mm-hmm. It's going to happen with you or without you. That's right. So wouldn't you rather it happen with you? And uh, this has been very enlightening, certainly a different episode than what we're used to. But if they apply these elements, especially early on in their career and train that muscle, I can see them being all the more successful. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to share. Sure. Is there an email address? Is there a website? What's the best way? People have tons of follow-up questions. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, no, no, what's no. the best way to get in touch with you without uh, finding you at your home? <laughs> yes. Please, please don't do that. Yeah. Uh, you'll freak my children out. Any of the things that I just listed there are, are great ways to kind of find my work. One thing better, the newsletter, I... I read and respond to literally everybody's response to it. So if you get one thing better, you get my email address. Uh, so the, I think the best thing that you can do is if you go to onethingbetter.email, subscribe, you'll get a welcome message. Okay. 
Hit respond to that welcome message. It goes right and to you'll me. you'll see it. Okay, I want to end off with this. Yes. I, I know you're a busy man, but being the editor-in-chief of a very popular magazine, mm -hmm. you're in a big position of influence, right? Mm -hmm. There are always people listening and they're going to try pitching you. Oh, they are. Their service, their story. <laughs> By the way, that person that's reaching out to you, their story is super unique. Their product is one of a kind. Right. Their, their service is never seen before. Yes. Um, what's a terrible way for someone to pitch you? And what do you recommend when people do want to get their story out? Maybe it is unique. Um, what's a good way to pitch? Okay. <laughs> well, there are, I, you know, we could be here for a whole other hour and I could just describe right. all the terrible ways to pitch me. I'd say the literal worst way to pitch me, which is not, I'm not expecting that your, your viewers or listeners were going to do this, but I will tell you what happens. So for comedy, I'll tell you oh. is uh, track down my personal cell phone number and oh, call no. me. That is a thing that happens. And every time it happens, I just think, well, what did you think the outcome of this was going to be? This is like, you know, I'm with my kids right now. It's, it's a Saturday afternoon. It's a phone afternoon. call, right? It's not a text. It's a phone no, call. No, it's a phone call. Right, a phone right, call. Right. A phone call and I'll pick up the phone. I mean, I usually don't pick up the phone for for numbers I don't know, but occasionally I think, oh, I'm waiting for the plumber or something. Maybe right, this is right. it, you know? And, so, right. and, uh, and I'll pick it up and, and somebody will be like, hey, I got your number and I just wanted to tell you. And I was like, can you not do this? Um, so don't do that. Uh, what's the best way? Okay. So look, first of all, if you want press for your business, the first thing that I, I need you to ask is why, why do you need it? And that's for an important reason. And that's because you should think of press as a tool, right? You don't go out and raise money from an investor because it feels good because you think you deserve it. But that's how people talk about press. I just, you know, I really deserve it. I've gotten to this place and I just feel like it's time to tell my story. Is it? Because press is a tool. It's a business tool and it can be useful, but only if you think about it right. And you, if you have a business, you have a limited amount of time and energy. And I don't know how much of it you should be spending on tools that aren't useful. But let's say that you have an answer. Let's say that the answer is, I uh, want to draw more attention to my B2B software, or I want, you know, I have a new product and I need to get it in front of consumers, or I'm going out to raise money from investors and I need some social proof that my company is notable. All right, fine. Great. So the next question is, what publications are going to help you get the thing that you're looking for? People will pitch me their products for, you know, teen girls or something like that. Like if we ran that story in Entrepreneur Magazine, zero teen girls are going to like buy it. Why are you pitching us? You should be pitching Cosmo or Teen Vogue or something. And so you got to find the right publication that's going to get you the thing that you want. And then the next thing that you got to do is spend time studying how that publication tells stories. Because, example, I was once doing some consulting work for a guy who had a really, it was a really interesting snack company, interesting snack company. I asked him, well, who's your, who's your target demo? Uh, he said, uh, millennial moms. I said, so what are they reading? They're reading Cosmo. So, okay, so let's talk about how to get your snack brand into Cosmo. Now, what he would like, of course, is he would like, uh, you know, a giant feature on his snack brand. Um, but do they run giant features on individual snack brands? I don't know. Let's take a look. The answer was no, they don't. So what do they do? Well, let's search around for snacks on Cosmo. And what we found was that the only time that snacks really appear on Cosmo is when they're in seasonal roundups best snacks for spring, right? 10 great snacks for Valentine's Day, something like that. Okay, great. Who's writing those? Who's writing those? Well, the bylines are right there. Let's take a look at them. Oh, they have a lifestyle editor. Oh, this is a freelancer who writes a lot about food. Now, those are the people to pitch. 
Those are the people. And you should time your pitch and you should shape it in a way that they can see exactly how the thing that you have is exactly the thing that they need in exactly the format in which they're operating. So, right, that's a far cry from calling me on the phone and saying, oh, can you just take a look at, no, no. Think about this strategically. This is a business tool. Use it like one. Awesome. Jason, we could probably spend another hour on that and uh, a whole lot more we didn't get to, but thank you so much for coming down. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Congratulations. You've listened to another episode of Kosher Money. And for those that do know, I do have a tip for you at the end of this outro. People are enjoying those tips. So I'm going to give you another one. But first, thanks to our sponsors, Twillery, Kol Chabad, and the Donors Fund. Links in the show notes. Take advantage. Help our sponsors. They are amazing people, amazing companies. Thank you to our friends at Living Smarter Jewish. If you need financial help, you need to put things together, you're in debt, whatever the situation may be, you need some guidance, look them up, livingsmarterjewish.org. Link is in the show notes. They are helping hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of families every month. And if you need help, there's no reason they can't give it to you. So reach out. Thank you to our friends at Mishpacha, mishpacha mishpacha.com. If you want more questions and more answers from many of our episodes, the content's all there, bonus content, enjoy. Now a quick tip. This is not advice as much as this is something that I see more and more people doing. There are people that are stuck with these low-yield savings accounts. So if you're banking at Chase, if you're banking at TD Bank, Wells Fargo, or anywhere throughout the world, most of your most of these banks have savings accounts that are yielding legitimately like 0.01% on your money. It's a waste. If you're not ready to invest that money, at least make sure that your money's in a high-yield savings account, right? I know a lot of people are using Goldman Sachs' Marcus account. You could probably get a referral link. It gives you a bonus 1% on top of already high yield. So I think right now in December 2023, it's 4.3, 4.4% somewhere over there. First three months, you get an additional 1% if you signed up with a referral link. And that's my tip. My tip is that there are literally thousands and thousands of people throughout the world that are making money on their money without having to invest their money. So there will be people that will tell you, hey, invest that money, you can make a higher return. And it's probably true. Most years, um, if you invest that money into a an ETF, SPY, whatever it is, not advice, you you will make what what's the average? Eight percent. But there are many people that want to hold on to a certain amount of money, right? Your three to six months emergency savings that Dave Ramsey wants you to have. You need that to be liquid, accessible. Why have it sit in an account that's yielding? zero percent so this is not an ad as much as it is a tip thank you to my brother yakov thank you to jody for the editing thank you to yoni on the back end so many awesome people making this work and the fact that you're listening at the tippy tippy end of the outro long after the tip means a lot to me thank you we'll see you next time keep your money kosher living lechaim